0: the the how-now-shall-we-live kind of part of it. And Peter, unlike Paul, who divides his books roughly in half that way, Peter actually just swings back and forth quite a bit. But in the beginning, he gives us a bunch of indicatives, and if you wanted to characterize this for the sake of our review, we we look at this as what God has done. What has God done? This is what he spends the first, especially nine verses of chapter 1 going over. He has accomplished for us a complete salvation for us, for his people. There is, God has a plan. He's conceived it in eternity past. He has accomplished it in the, in Jesus, in the, in the cross work of Christ. And it includes for us not just salvation here and now, not just freedom from the penalty of sin and its power in our lives, but it includes for us a future inheritance. So that our salvation, starting in eternity past and proceeding into eternity future for us, is a complete salvation. God does not simply save us from our sins, but he promises us glory. And he does everything from the beginning to the end to ensure that the people upon whom he has set his love are called, regenerated, justified, and eventually glorified. He does it all. And so he gives us a complete salvation. We add nothing to it. We receive everything, forgiveness, access to the throne, the th- access to the throne of God in heaven, and an inheritance of the future that will far outweigh. In fact, in the Corinthians it says that our momentary light afflictions are achieving for us a glory that far exceeds them. It outweighs them all. It doesn't make light of your sufferings in the here and now. Sufferings, which Peter's audience understands, but it's not just not making light of it, but just saying the glory that is to come will far outweigh them all. It will be worth it. And this is all tied up in the work of God on behalf of his people. And this results, even in the present time, in joy. Joy. I don't mean some light-hearted, fake-smile happiness. I'm talking joy. I'm not making light of suffering. I'm not saying life is easy, but I'm talking joy. In the midst of it, in the midst of your circumstances, in spite of your circumstances, we can have joy because we know to whom We belong. So joy in the here and now because of what God has done and because of his promises for the future in this complete work of God. But that's what God has done, qualifying us to, a share, to share in the inheritance of the saints in glory. But what God is doing now, this is also part of our complete salvation. This has to do, where, whereas that may be the doctrine of justification, doctrine of regeneration, doctrine of salvation, whatever you want to call it, now we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification. So what God has done and what God is doing. He did not save us and then say, I'll see you when you get there. No, he's still at work. He's still doing something in you. He is making you holy. He is renewing you in the image of Christ, the image that was lost in the fall in the Garden of Eden. He is making you a new creature. He has caused us to be born again to a new life, and this new life lives and grows And so this is all part of your salvation. And in the church today, not this church, you understand I'm saying the church today, this is somewhat debatable. It's not debatable. They are arguing over it in some quarters where sanctification is somehow separated from our salvation, from our justification. And I'm telling you it's the complete picture. I'm telling you if there is justification, there will be sanctification. What God has caused to be born again, he will grow up. And if there is no growth, if there is no fruit, if there is no sanctification, no progress in holiness, then there has not been justification because God gives us a complete salvation. And in explaining this or in doing this, Peter comes to us in this text and he gives us four commands to follow. Now, I know when we start talking commands, some people slip into this idea of legalism. This is what we must do to be saved, but that's just not what I'm saying here. These are things that happen in us, that God does in us because he has called us to himself. And and what? why does he command us? Because what God is doing in us, he, he often commands of us. That is how he works in us, telling us how we should walk. So what he is doing in us, he commands of us. This is very similar. In fact, I think it's synonymous with what Paul is saying in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you. And also, this begins to show us that Peter seems to be familiar with Paul's writings. We know that he knew Paul, but he seems to be familiar with Paul's writings. There's much overlap in his thought, though they say some things in very different ways. So we looked at the four commands that Peter gives for what God is doing now. We were told to fix our hope on the future. I do think some Christians, many Christians make this mistake. They don't do this. If you get caught up in the circumstances like Peter trying to walk on the water until he saw the waves all around him and begin to sink begin to sink you will fail as many times as not but if you fix your eyes on jesus the author and finisher of your faith if you will look off to the one who is faithful and stop worrying so much about whether you're being perfectly faithful in the here now the day by day if you get, if you stop looking at your circumstances that bring you fear and disappointment and frustration and look to him Fix your eyes on Jesus and be holy. Command number two, be holy as God is. Sin no more. Do the right thing. It is not just simply an avoidance of the wrong. It is a proactive righteousness. Be holy as God is. Walk in fear in this life, meaning reverence. But we spent a great deal of time on this last time. There must be room in your theology for a proper, healthy fear of God. Reverence, but reverence to the nth degree. Yes, joy. Yes, wonder, but in a trembling sense because God is still great. And and this God that we approach on the throne is awesome in wonder. And so walking in fear and reverence with the idea that God is present even here and now. And then finally to love one another. Love one another sincerely, fervently, and we do all of these things because God has loved us first and caused us to be born again. We're now down to chapter 1, verses 23, 24, he's caused us to be born again through the instrumentality of the word, the word which is living and endurishing, the word which will never perish, the word of God itself, the grace of God always as the grounds and root of our obedience, but never separated from, never separated from. If you separate those two, your obedience in your mind becomes the grounds on which God is pleased with you. And that is not what we're saying here. We're saying this is a complete salvation. God does it all. Now, that brings us to the text for this morning. And this morning, I have just two main points for you. Try to keep it simple. Last time, I have to admit, I'm a little worried about the time this morning. I have to say, this last time I went back and checked, and that sermon was 50 minutes long, and we had communion that day. So to those of you who remember that, I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, I understand. I'm often in your seat. Not that Seth is long. He's not long-winded. I'm saying, I'm in your seat. And I I understand that gets to be much. So today we have two points. I can't promise this will be short, but I'm working on it. Okay, Two main points. The key to spiritual growth and the comfort of being aliens no longer. The key to spiritual growth and the comfort of being aliens no longer. So in the first three verses, we have the key to spiritual growth. And we are told that we must crave or long for the milk of the word. Now, but first... We have to deal with these, this, this, this transition here, therefore, or so, in the ESV, putting aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all slander. Now, I always am tempted to dig into every individual word, and, and I'm not going to do that for the sake of time. But the idea of malice is just a general wickedness, deceit, and hypocrisy together is that you present yourself not at face value, not really showing who you are. There's an element of deception there, Envy, jealousy, you know, grieving over the good of others rather than being content with what God has given you, um, and slander, hurtful and untrue speech about somebody. But these words taken together are not an exhaustive list. This is just representative of actions and attitudes that as believers, we have to put these things aside. And so he tells us, put them aside, lay them aside. These things should not characterize God's people. And there's a therefore, in the ESV there's a so. So doesn't carry, the. I don't like so. Therefore, but either way, this word connects us to the previous context and to the ensuing context here. And what I think they're saying is that these things you should lay aside because they are actually enemies. How can you love your neighbor? How can you love your brother and sister and, and, and have malice towards them? How can you love them and speak evil of them? And so these things are not only enemies of the love, which is part of the Christian who is growing, but it's also enemies of that growth that he's about to give us the key to. Okay, If we, if we do not learn to put aside all the sins and the habits and the attitudes of the old person, then we will have a hard time making progress in the spiritual life. We, have, we will have a hard time going forward and growing up in the grace of God. So we need to learn to set these things aside, So that we can truly love one another. And so that we can have an expectation of growth. Part of growth is what we put away. Not just what we do, not just what we reach for. Part of growth is what we learn to put away. And we must reject sinful habits and attitudes. The ones connected with our old self. Especially in the ways that we put towards one another. But having done that, having put that aside, we come to verse 2, like newborn babies, long or crave for the pure milk of the word. Now, the ESV doesn't say of the word. I believe it says the pure spiritual milk. But I'm here to tell you that the translation of pure milk of the word is certainly allowed by the Greek. It is certainly implied in the text because we've already looked at the word in the last verses of chapter 1, which is instrumental in bringing people to God, instrumental in your new birth. And we now are talking about the word being instrumental in your growth. Not to mention we can also go elsewhere in scripture and just look at, the, look at the, the attitude towards the word. And we don't have to look past Jesus, who even in his temptation said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word. So we're talking about the scriptures here. What's the key to spiritual growth? Craving the pure milk of the word of God. I'm always fascinated you can you can give somebody a plain statement like that, and they'll say, no, that's not good. No, that's not enough. That can't be the key. There must be something more. There must be something better. And at this point, I really had every intention of putting in some sort of you know popular culture reference here to make me look connected to the younger people, because I'm trying to include the young people when I get to speak, but I was informed by my son that that reference was too old. And most of them would not have seen that movie, So I'm moving on. We're not even going to include it this morning. People look for something else. Even Christians do that, do we not? You know, I remember, I'm I'm not, I'm not a senior citizen yet, but I'm approaching. I'm getting closer. But I have been around the church long enough now to see a whole bunch of movements come and go. You know, for instance, you remember promise keepers. Anybody remember hearing of promise keepers? may not have been as much in the Presbyterian world as the evangelical world, but I remember hearing it. I remember men gathering from all over the country, filling football stadiums for promise keepers. They felt like, I need to go to this, and then I'll come home and I'll be a better husband. I'll be better to my kids. or whatever. And, and I'm not knocking that whole movement. It had some positive emphases. okay. But yet here sits the word that God says is the key to your spiritual growth. And you are to crave it like a newborn baby. Now, there's a lot of overlap, like I said, between Peter and Paul. Paul speaks of being an infant as not a good thing. But you've got to kind of separate that out of the context for this morning because we're only to copy being an infant in this instance in one, in one way. The craving for the Word. I mean, we've all had children. When that baby gets hungry, what satisfies him? Yeah, his mother's milk. Nothing else. Nothing else. You can't give him a substitute. You can't give him something you think might be better for him or her. Sorry, I had all boys. I come from all boys. They crave for milk. They make it known that this is what I want. This is what I need. And we are told, like like a child in that sense, we are told to crave the pure milk of the word. We are to seek after it. We are to work at it if necessary. Put forth that effort. And I know for some of you, this doesn't come as easily as for others. But this is what God has given you for your growth. Craving the pure milk of the word. And in this, at the end of verse 2, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Do you want to grow up? Do you get tired of being tossed about by every? whim of false teaching that comes, or by your emotions, or by your circumstances, do you get tired of that? Read the Word. Read the Word. And if it doesn't satisfy you one day, read the Word anyway. If you want to develop this craving for the Word, you know how you do it? Read the Word. Read the word. Go through the Psalms. You know, the Psalms is a whole book of different situations and circumstances and a whole book of even the psalmist's emotional response to all these things. And how does he, and how does he correct it? How does he, how does he, he get what he needs? He meditates upon the law of God, the word of God. You know, the Psalms tells us that the Word of God is like sweet, like honey in the honeycomb. You read through Psalm, that's Psalm 19. If you read through Psalm 119, passage after passage after passage of the advantageousness or the blessedness of the Word of God in the life of the believer. You want to crave the Word, you want to grow in the craving of the Word, work at it. Work at it. Sometimes the, 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 the morsels fall out in front of you. And that's a day for great rejoicing. But sometimes you have to dig. And that's Okay. Because diamonds aren't found on the surface. You dig. You dig. Crave the word of God. Work at developing the the craving for the word of God. Read the word. God commands of us what he is doing in us. He will develop in you that, that hunger and thirst for the word. What he commands of us is what he's doing in us. And it is the key to spiritual growth, reading the word of God. And brings us to point number two, the comfort of being aliens no longer. That's the key to spiritual growth, growth, and now the comfort of being aliens no longer. This is verses 4 through 10, and I do believe this is a theme of the book as a whole. Certainly is a theme or the main theme of this section that we're about to dive through. But we're going to look at the whole thing instead of going verse by verse at this point because I just think we need to see the big picture. First of all, let me ask the question, remember who Peter's talking to. Here I am telling you, by the way, (laughs) that there's great comfort in being aliens no longer. But who is Peter talking to? Aliens. You go back to chapter 1, verse 1, to those who reside as aliens. If you go to verse 11... The one verse past where we're at today. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the flesh of us which, which wage war against your soul. Peter is writing to aliens. And yet I do believe the theme of this section is aliens no longer. Because we all know you can be aliens in one sense and not another, right? And though they are existing and they're walking as aliens in this world, because by their newfound faith, they have become outcasts in some situations. Some have suffered persecutions in certain situations, but they just don't fit in the world around them or in the company they used to keep. In one way or the other, they are now ill-fitted in the world that they were once a part of, and so they are existing or residing as aliens and strangers. But is that the worst thing that can happen to you? Is that the worst thing that can happen to you? So Paul is speaking to aliens in this world, in this life, ostracized, persecuted, out of step, ill fit, and it takes a toll. And so he's wanting to encourage them. But really, how bad is it to be aliens from the world? Could it be worse? It is worse. For all of those who are not aliens to this world, you are alienated from your Creator. Alienated from your Creator. In spite of what you'll hear in the popular media, all people are basically good. They just need a little help do the right thing here and there, or they need to educate, whatever. Whatever their solution, you're not. You're basically, you are born guilty of the sin of our forefathers. You are born with a sin nature, which leads to you actually committing sins. But because of all these things, you are alienated from your creator. And for these people, Peter is encouraging them by saying, well, with him at least, you are aliens no longer. Because he has done a work. He has overcome. He has bridged this gap. And he has reconciled people to himself. So this is their situation. Their situation is that they reside as aliens now. But they are no longer alienated from God. He claims them as his own. If you would look down, for instance, at verse 9, if we just look, read 9 and 10 one more time, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. See, this is what God calls them. Verse 10, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. They were aliens to their creator. At odds with our creator... Do you ever think about that? For those of you who do not claim to be believers and you're here with a friend and everything, we're thrilled to have you here. We are. Don't get me wrong. But have you ever taken a moment and think? Have you ever in the quietness of your own house, in the dark sometime when the lights are out, you've turned everything off, you're waiting to go to bed, is, do you ever have just a little twinge of something's wrong? Something's wrong? It's because you're at odds with your creator. A theologian a long time ago said that we were all made with a God-shaped hole in their heart that only God can fill, that only God can satisfy. It seems that we spend our lives many times looking for meaning. And even, it's fascinating to read biographies of people who have reached this pinnacle, have achieved the thing they wanted, have possessed the thing they sold themselves for. And yet there's an emptiness. There's something they can't satisfy. That's because you're at odds with your creator. You aren't alienated from him. And if he does not do something... You are in trouble. I'm sorry. I have to take this off. Is this good? We're good. I'm sorry. But that is just, I've already dropped it twice this morning. I I can't do it. At odds with your creator. I'll try to speak up. But what has God done for his people? What has he done to take somebody who was alienated from him and reconcile them to himself? Well, he has given his son. Now, his son, Jesus, by name, only appears in our passage in verse 5, verse 5 of chapter 2, you also as living stones being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it is in him that we worship. It's in him that we can approach the throne and offer up sacrifices of praise. But other than that, that doesn't give us a big picture. And other than that, by name at least, Jesus is absent. So where is he? Where is he? He's the living stone. I love this. He's the living stone. Now Peter identifies him as such in another passage in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 10, when Peter is on trial. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Obviously justifying or explaining a healing, but it was in the name of Jesus. This Jesus, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And now there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is this living stone through whom there is salvation from the condition we're born in to be reconciled to our creator that we might be aliens no longer. And for those who are already reconciled, you belong to God. You belong to God. And no one can snatch you out of his hand. No matter the circumstances you find yourself in walking in this world as an alien... No matter the situation around you, the losses you suffer, the pain you feel, you belong to God and no one can snatch you from his hand. You are an alien no longer. Not only that, our Jesus, this living stone, has suffered before you. It says in verse 4, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. Jesus was rejected by men. But he is choice and precious in the sight of God. Drop down. Verse seven, this precious value, this this way that God looks upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the stone rejected by men, choice and precious to God. This precious value or this honor in the ESV is for you who believe. The way God looks upon his son is the way God looks upon you who believe in his son. And the suffering, the rejection that he suffered, was not because not from anything he did wrong. He did this for you. So this living stone has suffered. He knows what it's like for you to suffer. But this living stone has been, is choice in the sight of God, just as you are. And that should be a great comfort and encouragement to those who are aliens in this world. So that's what God is doing. And all these things hinge on the person of Christ. This rejected, Do you feel rejected? He was rejected first. But take heart, because God... God identified him, vindicated him at the resurrection and lifted him up and seated him on high. And just as you are suffering rejection now and know something of the deprivation, just something of the deprivation that your Lord suffered on your behalf, so you will also receive something of the glory that your Savior is now experiencing as he sits on God's right hand. it all hinges on Christ. Our position before God, our relationship with him, transformed by Christ, our faith in him. Our identity in him qualifies us, reconciles us with God. So he being mentioned explicitly once for all is clearly all throughout, clearly identified by Peter in Acts as the savior of mankind, the savior of God's people. So our alienation is remedied in him. So yes, we suffer. Yes, we know resurrection, but so did Christ. Yes, they are chosen. Yes, we are chosen and acceptable to God as Christ was, inasmuch as we believe in him. And as Christ was honored and glorified, so they and us will also be honored and glorified by faith in him. we are aliens no longer, in a more important sense, in a very real sense. It also says that God is at work. In fact, this is all God's work, back in verse 4, Uh, Verse 5, you as living stones are being built up. This is God who is doing it into a spiritual house. Spiritual house gives this the picture or, or the idea of a temple, but also uses the word house. This is a dwelling place, but it's a dwelling place where God will come and dwell among his people. And it's a place where ultimately he takes us to go and dwell with him so that God and man dwelling together and having communion. But it is something he is doing. We are being built up in a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. We are aliens no longer. But what is for salvation for God's people is for judgment for those who refuse to believe. This is also contained in our passage in verse 7 when it says that this precious value is for those who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this living stone upon which the house is built, this stone which the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone. That's because of God's approval. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for those who disbelieve, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. What is meant and what is worked out for salvation for God's people, salvation and blessing for those of us who believe, is judgment for those who refuse Him. It brings us to the question for those of you who have filled your life with so many other things, trying to actually be at peace in the world, trying to satisfy that gnawing longing in you, and nothing has worked. I promise you, I've seen many people. You know, I have, I have an interesting job. We, we run just a millwork company, we're not wealthy. But we serve very wealthy people. And in 42 years that we've been in business, my father knows better than I do, we have not met a rich person who's happy. It really isn't. I'm not saying it's impossible. But I am saying it's common, almost to the point of being a general rule. I have family members who have served following after money for 25 years. And I just want to ask you the But But they're not happy. And so I just want to ask you the question, what if you can't have both? What if in this life you can't have it all? What if God so designed it that you can have him or the rest of it, but you cannot have both? What if? And that takes us to the question, then, what will you do with Jesus? If it's in Jesus that we can have this salvation, that we can be at home with God, that we can receive this eternal reward that will not rot or rust or fade away, if it's him and him alone that you can have all that, What are you willing to give up? Or will you remain alienated from your creator? Paul says in Ephesians, this is kind of the overlapping, the thought here. You can see it in what Peter's been saying. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling. What will you do with Jesus? I guess if you remember nothing else this morning, first of all, the people of God, I want you to be encouraged. Despite your circumstances, you're no longer alienated from your creator, and and that makes all the difference in the world. And for those of you who refuse to believe, what will you do with Jesus? He is He is offered to you today. He's available for you. He's done everything necessary. You must believe. In a few minutes, we're going to take part also in the communion table, where not only is not only now are you hearing about Jesus, With, with the mind, in the ears, but he's also going to present to us here physically with symbols, bread and wine. What will you do with him? I, I don't know how else I can make it any plainer. <laughs> you need Jesus. And if you cannot have it all in this life, what will you do at the end of this life? There's more for you. There's more for you. So what is the end result of this? What is... What is the purpose in all this? What do we do in the here and the now based on all this? Well, there's just two things listed quickly in our passage, both worship and witness. In verse 5, you are being built together into a spiritual house for a priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. These are no longer sacrifices of atonement as if you can make up for your sin, but these are sacrifices of praise. And so we are a royal priesthood. We gather together to offer up praise to our Father. It is not just a corporate thing. We do this together on Sundays, but we do it individually in our daily lives as we pray and as we praise and as we thank, but we also do it in our living, to walk holy as God is holy, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to show forth the greatness of God in our lives, to show to the world that coming to him is worth it, even at great cost, because he he is invaluable. He's invaluable. So there's worship, and then there's witness. We see this down in verse 9, that you may proclaim... You are God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies of God. Go tell somebody the excellencies of God this week. Go introduce somebody to Jesus this week. Speak His name as the one who can reconcile them to their Creator. That may make all the difference in their life. Go tell all that the Lord has done for you. Aliens no longer home's a good place to be. Let's pray. Father,